HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Okay, I'll, I'll turn it up. Uh, welcome to Straight No Chaser. This is your host, Katie Kiefer. We're broadcasting live on the Heritage Radio Network. Um, and I have a really special show today because I have a very special guest host uh, with me in the studio. Dr. Marion Nessel is joining me uh, live. And on the phone, I have Kristen Cousins. Um, Kristen has just published a really provocative article with Gary Taubes in um, the November-December issue of Mother Nature. And I'm going to give you a little background on Kristen before we start. Um, Kristen first saw the devastating effects of sugar as a dental director in low-income clinics in Denver. She moved into dental administration and took a position managing operations at Kaiser Permanente Dental Care Program before leaving in 2009 to pursue independent research into the sugar industry's public relations claims. That's right, folks. We're going to talk about sugar today. Currently, she is a senior consultant at the University of Colorado Center for Health Administration and an instructor at the University of Washington School of Dentistry. And my other guest in studio, Dr. Marion Nelson, really hardly needs an introduction. But just in case, I want to read a little bit about her, too, because she's so incredibly cool. Um, she's she's uh, if people thought they were hip out here in uh, Bushwick. <laughs> She's the uber hipster. <laughs> Nobody's ever called me that before. <laughs> I know. I thought I figured you'd like that. Um, Dr. Nessel is the Paulette Goddard Professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University, which she chaired from 1988 to 2003. She's also a professor of sociology at NYU and visiting professor of nutritional sciences at Cornell. You're, these bios, girls, they just make me feel so bad about myself. From <laughs> I just have to be old. <laughs> I am old. That's the problem. From 1986 to 88, she was Senior Nutrition Policy Advisor in the Department of Health and Human Services 
and editor of the Surgeon General's Report on Nutrition and Health. She is the author of three prize-winning books, Food Politics, How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health, Safe Food, The Politics of Food Safety, and What to Eat. She's also written two books about pet food, Pet Food Politics, The Chihuahua and the Cold Mine, and Feed Your Pet Right with Malda Neshaim. And her most recent book, which she was interviewed for on this program about a year ago, when was it? In April, I think it was, Why Calories Count from Science to Politics, also written with Dr. Nesheim. She writes the monthly Food Matters column for the San Francisco Chronicle Blogs Daily at www.foodpolitics.com, which, by the way, if you have not gone to this site on a regular basis, I visit at least twice a week. Um, It is absolutely fascinating, and everybody should have a look at it. And she Twitters at Marion Nestle. Um, She was awarded just recently an honorary doctor of science degree from Transylvania University. Talk about an honor. That's just so fabulous, Marion. How the hell did they even do that? I mean, how did they find you in Transylvania? Well, Transylvania's in Kentucky. (laughs) Talk about bursting my bubble, girl. Sorry about that. (laughs) Um, And they have the best T-shirts I've ever seen. They have a really terrific sense of humor. Uh, They they have to with that name. Anyway, let's jump right into this program. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank you so, so much for joining us today. Um, Thank you you, for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. um, So you and Gary Taubes uh, published a very provocative piece in the November-December issue of Mother Jones detailing the many ways in which the sugar industry has manipulated data and bought studies to defend itself against claims that sugar is bad for our health. Tell us how you got inspired to write this piece, and how did you get all the information? Well, really, it started about five years ago, and I was at a dental conference, and I found myself chasing down one of the keynote speakers. And it was a conference on type 2 diabetes and gum disease. Those two things are linked, so dentists are really interested in learning all they can about diabetes. And we had actually two keynote speakers. The first was Dr. Jane Kelly, who was from the Centers for Disease Control. And she was there to tell us about the National Diabetes Education Program. She wanted to educate us as dentists to be able to talk to our patients who had diabetes and give them the best advice. And she handed out a series of brochures, and I was looking at the diet advice and saw that the diet advice said that we should tell people to reduce their saturated fat intake and their overall calories. And it didn't say anything specific about reducing sugar. And I just sort of thought, hmm, that's strange. It's diabetes. Shouldn't we be talking a little bit about sugar here? And then the second speaker, at the end of his talk, handed out a book called the Stop and Go Fast Food Nutrition Guide. And I didn't get the book. Uh, I was towards the back of the ballroom, so it took a little while for me to get the book. And I flipped to the first couple of pages that had drinks listed. And I noticed that sweet tea, which has 44 grams of sugar, was given a green light as a healthy drink. And then I looked and saw that Mountain Dew, 16 ounces of Mountain Dew, was rated as a better choice than one cup of whole milk. And I just, yes, (laughs) I just was shocked. So I looked up and the speaker was packing up his belongings and just getting ready to head out to catch his flight. And I jumped up out of my seat, ran down the hall, and I caught him just as he was leaving, uh, heading out the door. And I said, you know, how can you possibly say that sugary drinks are healthy choices? And he looked right at me and he said, well, 
there is no evidence that links sugar to chronic disease. And I was just so shocked. I couldn't even say anything in response. You know, in my head, I'm thinking, gosh, well, tooth decay is the number one chronic disease in children, and recommending Mountain Dew for a diabetic, isn't that like throwing gasoline on the fire? I couldn't even get any words out. So I left this conference thinking it's just very strange that um, we're either not talking about sugar or we're actually promoting sugar uh, for diabetics. And so I just thought, you know, there's got to be something going on here. And, of course, I'd read Marion's book, Food Politics, which had a big impact on me. And so I thought there's got to be some evidence that the sugar industry has somehow impacted these guidelines. And so I just set off looking for evidence. That's what got me started. Amazing. And how did you actually get uh, copies of these studies that you were able to find and, and talk about in um, in the article in Mother Nature? How did you... Mother Jones. Or, sorry, Mother <laughs> Jones, yeah. Right. Mojo. Um, well, you know, after a lot of looking, just sort of Google search, okay, staring at it and trying to figure out what in the heck am I going to type in to see if I, you know what I can find. And ultimately what happened was I live in Denver, and I was at the library and looking up sugar just to see what I could find. And it turns out that sugar beets are a really big crop in the state of Colorado. And there was a sugar company called the Great Western Sugar Company based in Denver. They got their start in the early 1900s. And they went out of business in the early 80s. And since they've had such an impact on our state, a lot of the records were donated to local libraries. And wow. there was, yeah, <laughs> there was a collection at one of the universities of photographs, and I was just sort of going through the catalogs, and I saw a reference to nutrition. So I thought, huh, I better go check that out. And it turns out that there was a picture of two sugar executives receiving the Silver Anvil Award, mm-hmm. which is like the Oscar of the public relations world. And they had kept all of these documents that gave context to this photograph. So I found all of these internal documents marked confidential that were kept by the <laughs> PR man at Great Western Sugar to, you know, for this one particular photograph. So it that's brings where all the tears to my from. researcher's eyes. Yeah. You know, it's the kind of thing that people just dream about. Right. So what was in there? Yeah, talk about the smoking gun, like, you know, nailing them. Well, I'm going to read you a quote, actually, from, uh, from the article, and then you can comment on that because it, it addresses what Marion just said, asked about. Um, they, that's the sugar industry, would, uh, would spend, this is part of your article, would spend roughly $655,000 between 1975 and 1980 on 17 studies designed, as internal documents put it, to, quote, maintain research as a main prop of the industry's defense. I just love that line. Each proposal was vetted by a panel of industry-friendly scientists and a second committee staffed by representatives from sugar companies and, quote, contributing research members such as Coca-Cola, Hershey's, General Mills, and Nabisco. Most of the cash was awarded to researchers whose studies seemed explicitly designed to exonerate sugar. One even proposed to explore whether sugar could be shown to boost serotonin levels in rats' brains and thus prove of therapeutic value as in the relief of depression, an internal document noted. It works for me. Yeah. 
<laughs> I know. Who doesn't love a little sugar boost? I mean, um, I love Coca-Cola. Can you describe some of these bought studies and how they were able to refute or deny the claims of others who were more critical of the role of sugar in human health? Um, so can you like uh, backtrack a little bit and tell us like some what, what were some of these internal documents? Um, what kinds of notes were they on, on the um, strategies that they were going to employ uh, to sort of squelch any science that didn't support the idea that sugar was a good nutritional option? Well, much of what was in these files were actually internal board reports. So the Sugar Association is the trade association for cane and beet sugar producers that's based in D.C. And so they have board meetings inviting sugar companies. Uh, and so board reports listing uh, the sugar research studies that they are funding, all of the researchers that had descriptions of the studies, what the objectives were, it had all their financial statements, uh, it had internal communication going back and forth between the Sugar Association and the sugar companies. So there's quite a bit of material to draw from. And essentially what it looks like, there's sort of two parts to their strategy. One was to cloud the evidence. So if there was one study that showed a harmful effect of sugar, then they sponsored another study that would contradict that result. So if 50% of the studies show harmful effects of sugar, and 50% of the studies show that sugar is safe, then a clear conclusion can never be drawn because there's evidence on either side. And this is, you know, the overall strategy. This comes right out of the cigarette industry playbook. Yeah. Just exactly. right out of it. It's exactly what the cigarette industry did. So continue. Yeah, yeah. This is fun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I know, Kristen, it's really well, it's a then, great so story. The other part, you know, once they've clouded the evidence, is to offer up an alternate theory as to uh, what's causing diabetes. And kind of what happened, I think, is obesity has sort of been used as a smokescreen. You know, certainly obesity and diabetes are, are associated with each other, but they tried to really say that obesity causes diabetes. And the problem with that, you know, particularly in my home state of Colorado, our statistics, 50% of people with type 2 diabetes are not actually obese. So by shifting all this focus to obesity, they were taking the heat off of sugar. Fascinating. Um, did you want to comment on that, Mary? Yeah, I mean, the, the issue is complicated because obesity is a risk factor for diabetes, for type 2 diabetes, first right. of all. Um, it's not that every obese person gets type 2 diabetes. It's that if you look at the universe of people who have type 2 diabetes, about 90% of them are overweight. So obesity is very, very closely linked to it. So now the question is, what's linked to obesity? Well, here, uh, Calories are the main factor. Uh, obesity is a matter of caloric imbalance. Uh, but sugars come into this in a number of ways. First of all, people eat far too much sugar. Secondly, sugar makes people want to eat more. You get, you know, it's hard to eat one cookie. And grain-based desserts are, in the United States, the single largest provider of calories in American diets, a single food group that provides the most calories wow. in American diets. So it's, it's almost impossible to separate sugars from calories. So what you can say is that an increasing amount of evidence links um, the frequent consumption of sugars, especially in the form of sugary drinks, to uh, overweight, bad diets, 
um, and to obesity. But because there are several steps in this and diets are very complicated, it's really hard to design definitive studies that focus on one factor in the diet. Um, and it's easy to confuse the situation. The studies are hard to do, so the science is always going to be mixed. Uh, but obviously, sugar has calories. It contributes calories. People eat more when they eat a lot of sugar. Yeah. And, and in that sense, uh, it's linked. And also, people with, uh, di- with diabetes, type 1 or type 2, have difficulty handling not small amounts of sugar. Small amounts of sugar are not a problem. It's the large amount of sugar. Well, that, 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 that makes people. me want to just like jump in with the increase in the, because I looked this up, between, uh, according to the American Heart Association, the average per capita consumption has gone from 22.2 teaspoons a day to 34.3 teaspoons a day, and particularly in the younger ages, like between 14 and 20 years old. So what is that, like a 17% increase or something crazy it sounds like, like a that? 30% 30% increase. Increase. It sounds yeah. like a 30% increase, but um, I'm not sure how, I, I don't like the, t- I'm a gram person, I can't mm-hmm. help it, um, or a calorie person. I mean, the, the studies that I've seen indicate that the average number of calories a day from sugars is well into the hundreds. Yeah. And for heavy users of sugars and soft drinks, it's much, much more than that. Whatever it is, it's way too much. Yeah, absolutely. So um, another statistic that I, that I thought was kind of interesting to bring up, Kristen, in light of your, um, you know, to go back to the studies and the internal memos that you, were, that you discovered, um, between 1993 and 94, this I got from the American Sugar Association, a press release that they issued in 2011, they're, they were crowing about how you know how much the impact of sugar, uh, what a direct benefit effect uh, <coughs> sugar has on uh, the national um, you know economy. So uh, between ninety three ninety four and two thousand nine two thousand ten, the direct economic impact of the U.S. sugar industry on the economy increased by more than eighty percent, from ten point seven to nineteen point five billion dollars. And then at the same time, there was this very large 30% increase in the amount of sugar consumed in roughly sort of the same time period. And were they including high fructose corn syrup in that? Yes, they oh, are. They were. So it was total sugar. Total sugar. Plural. Yeah, whether from cane, sugar, yeah. beet, sugar Sugars, beets. plural. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. So I thought what was interesting about this is that in light of what you discovered in those memos about sort of this obfuscation of, of research and so forth by buying studies, you know, does that, does it, that time period correlate to this tremendous upsurge in the use of sugars in the American diet? Well, what was interesting to me was learning that researchers at the USDA uh, in 1976 were calling for a 60% reduction of the consumption of added sugars, and that was at 1976 levels. And look at what's happened, you know, with the increase and then the continued increase in the diabetes and obesity epidemics and what would have happened if we'd listened, you know, back then in the 70s. Well, it just, I mean, I think people listened. I think there was a time in the 70s where, uh, you know, 
people were aware of the fact that sugars were bad. And I think a lot of people started switching over to honey. And you know, remember that? I mean, Mary, yeah, you I remember do, that. I'm, I'm not familiar with that Department of Agriculture document. I sure would love to see it. Yeah. Because 1977 was when the first dietary goals for the United States came out. Um, and those definitely, or at least in the first version of the goals, suggested eating less sugar. Um, and by the end of the year, the furor about the dietary goals had been so intense that it really wasn't possible to ever talk about eating less of anything again. The first dietary guidelines that came out in 1980 were really the last time that the Department of Agriculture was able to say cut down on sugars in a really direct way because there was so much opposition from the food industry for any eat less message. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're now at a stage where the 2010 dietary guidelines do say cut down on sugary drinks and, and sugars, but it's buried way deep in the document and obfuscated. It's very, very difficult for federal agencies to say less of it, eat less of anything. They just get into way too much political trouble. So that's the problem that we're dealing with. Um, so that's why Kristen's study uh, is so completely shocking and amazing. I mean, I thought I knew all this stuff, and I learned some things from that article. I was very grateful to her for digging that stuff up. Yeah, it's fascinating. Listen, unfortunately, we have to take a short break, a 30-second break, in fact. So, Kristen, stay on the line. We'll be right back with Kristen Cousins and with Dr. Marion Nessel. Stay tuned. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edward Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. And we are back with uh, Kristen Cousins in Colorado, the author of um, Big Sugar's Sweet Little Lies in the uh, November-December issue of Mother Jones. And in the studio with me today is Dr. Marion Nessel. My, my name, of course, is Katie Kiefer, and we're talking sugar. We're talking sweet Talk and sweet talk. So, um, Kristen, let's talk more about your article. Uh, give us a little bit more juice on on the research that you, um, on the internal research that you were found when you were uncovering all these various documents from the uh, defunct company and the public relations campaign that had earned them so much acclaim. Right. So it was a time uh, when they won the Silver Anvil Award, this Oscar of the public relations world. It's 1976. And the years prior were not very good years for the sugar industry. It was a perfect storm of public scrutiny. They'd had an advertising campaign promoting things that actually said, sugar can be the willpower that you need to (laughs) undereat. And it was a picture of a woman uh, eating an ice cream cone shortly before lunch. And the FTC (laughs) actually, thankfully, came down on them for that. There was a big price spike uh, in sugar in 1974, and housewives were actually starting to ban sugar. And then, you know, there was the dietary guidelines and the McGovern Committee reviewing the evidence, and there was an FDA review of the science that was all going on at the same time. 
And so the Sugar Association really had to uh, circle the wagons and come up with a PR plan to meet all of these challenges. And so what I found, you know, is a 19-point public relations strategy working together with the Carl Beyer public relations firm. And so the key was gathering together a group of six doctors and two dentists. It was their scientific advisory board. They worked together with, I think you mentioned, those other companies, Coca-Cola, Hershey, to screen the research projects. And then they used those experts to go out and talk in the media and promote sugar. They had a whole uh, plan hiring registered dietitians to go out and speak on behalf of sugar. They, um, you know, media, just everything, a whole uh, barrage of, of strategies to uh, address some of these challenges in the early 70s. They must have worked because I'm pretty sure I have a copy of that FDA report in my office, and if I remember correctly, it exonerated sugar. Exactly. And so they put together a white paper of all the studies that showed that sugar was safe, and they actually submitted that white paper to the committee that was reviewing the evidence for the FDA. And lo and behold, they came out with a ruling that sugar was safe. And not only that, but the chair of the committee that was reviewing the evidence for the FDA had been the scientific advisor for the Sugar Research Foundation in oh, the two years nice? before. So they rigged the jury, they rigged the evidence, and they got a favorable ruling that sugar is safe by the FDA. And that ruling is still on the books today. Amazing. And that, that brings us right to the point of the of the ability of industry, whether it's tobacco, sugar, or you know, in general, uh, or agricultural industries, in buying research, um, in buying departments at universities. And, and it's, you know, the more that I dig into these various topics, the more I realize that, um, you know, no university, unless they're really well endowed, is lucky enough to be able to say no when, you know, somebody like Monsanto or the American Sugar Association comes up and says, I'll give you a new lab, you know, let's see what you can gin up for me. So can we talk a little bit about um, sort of buying studies and, and the impact that has on the advance of science and how it can maybe be controlled in some way or, Marion? Yeah, I, I think that a sponsored stu- when I see a study that comes out that is a little bit surprising and that exonerates something that I think is likely to be harmful, like sugar or lots of other things, I immediately look to see who sponsored the study. Um, In the last 10 years or so, uh, scientific journals have been much more rigorous and diligent about insisting that authors disclose conflicts of interest. Mm-hmm. They didn't used to at all, but now most journals require it, and they want, and you have to say who pays for the study and what your role was in the study. And so it's very helpful. You just flip to the end where the acknowledgments are, and you say, oh, this was sponsored by the Sugar Association. Big surprise. Um, and every company that markets a food product 
would love to have studies demonstrating the healthful qualities of that product, and they all sponsor studies. And those studies, surprise, invariably come out with results that favor the interests of the sponsor. And there are two reasons for that. First of all, the and it has to do with who the investigators are. It's not that the companies are buying the results. It's more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. The investigators, first of all, have to think that there's something good about the product. Or they have to uh, not think that being bought by a food company, that there's anything wrong with being sponsored by a food company. So they're either naive or they already are in the pocket of that particular, uh, uh, of that particular industry. And it's really easy to design very well-conducted scientific studies to give you the answer that you want. Um, the best the example that I particularly love to give is pomegranates, for example. Po- the pomegranate people have spent 30 or $40 million to demonstrate that pomegranate is a superfruit. And their studies, which are extremely well conducted in very respectable labs, demonstrate that if you feed pomegranate juice to rats, the antioxidant levels in the rat's blood goes up. I could have told them that. <laughs> Without spending $35 million, that's, uh, that's a study that lacked controls. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't comparing pomegranate juice to orange juice or any other kind of juice. They were just showing that pomegranate juice had antioxidant. Well, of course it does. Yeah. So that's not, I mean, that's not bad science. It's just poorly controlled science. Yeah. You know, it hasn't been thought through critically. And so if you do uncritical science, you can get the result that you want really, really easily. It's not hard to do that at all. And that's why sponsored studies are so suspect. Um, And they get out into the press. The press only recently has started examining who pays for the research. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's only recently that there's been more and more concern about this kind of thing. And almost every study of research shows that sponsored studies invariably favor the sponsor and they do exactly what we talked about already they confuse the science that's the number one rule in the tobacco industry playbook is you confuse the science wow amazing um i'm going to move on a little bit because um first of all we're running out of time which is very distressing um, but uh, one thing I did read, which I thought was very interesting, in the Huffington Post, um, this was uh, from David Katz, uh, who is the director of Yale Prevention Research Center, and um, and he published uh, quite a, a sort of not a response to your article, but a response to sort of Gary Taubes and and the um, one what is it one nutrient at a time oh oh onat onat n a a t so here is the following <laughs> quote lustig and taubes are propagating the onat fallacy o n a a t standing for one nutrient at a time fallacy like atkins and others who have come before them they appear to be dualists who divide the spectrum and subtleties of food into good versus evil and iconoclasts who get attention by challenging conventional wisdom the redundant aspirations of dietary dualistic iconoclasts over a span of decades have done us no favors 
This good versus evil food view invited us all to cut fat and eat snack well cookies, and then to cut carbs while ignoring trans fats. We could waste a lot of time and squander a lot of health finding more equally silly places to go. So basically, um, he's saying that sugar is not the, the evil that is being presented, although that's not really what your article was about. Your article was about the speciousness of the studies that had been supplied to support the sugar industry. But still, um, it is a position that is, uh, you know, that is very much espoused by Dr. Lustig, by, Do- uh, by Gary Taubes, um, that sugar is the be-all and end-all. What did you guys think of that? What do you think of what he's saying there? Well, when I see that, it sounds so much to me kind of like the the industry defense. You know, there are no good or bad foods. And something I found interesting about Dr. Katz is, just as Marion was describing uh, industry-funded studies, he's actually uh, taken some research money from the maker of Hershey's chocolate bars. (laughs) When he's defending sugar, he says there's no good or bad foods. When he's talking about chocolate, he tells us that chocolate is a heart-healthy, good food. So I see some contradictions Are you saying it? Is it? (laughs) (laughs) I I like chocolate. (laughs) Yeah, I want to comment on that. Uh, I've never heard the term ONET before, but I love it. It's sort of another way of talking about nutritionism, which is the reduction of everything about nutrition to one nutrient. Um, I think everybody can agree, and if you push... Uh, Dave Katz on it, I think he would agree too, that people eat too much sugars, that there's just far, far too much sugar in the American diet. And what Gary Taubes and Robert Lustig are doing is to make, is to demonize sugar and make it um, the thing that everybody needs to be most worried about. If people pay attention to that and reduce their sugar intake, I think they will be making a contribution to public health. Um, it's, it's, as I said, it's very difficult to separate sugar from calories, but sugars are an enormous source of calories. Yeah, and they're in and everything. It's not just sugary drinks. Oh, yeah. All processed foods contain enormous amounts of sugar oh, yeah. and salt. It's, so it's, it's, it's an enormous problem. <clears throat> and, um, you know, if you pushed um, Robert Lustig on, I, I mean, and I have done this, is can we do some quantitative stuff here? What's a reasonable, I mean, sugar's not poison. Surely people can eat sugar without dying on the spot. And if you push him on it, he'll say that 50 grams of uh, fructose-containing sugars a day is not anything that anybody needs to worry about. Well, 50 grams of sugar is, the, is just a little bit more than what's in a 20-ounce soda. Wow. It's not very much compared to what people are actually eating. Or to put it another way, you have no idea how much sugars there are in soft drinks. Yeah. It's, um, and so one big soft drink a day does your sugar. that You shouldn't be eating any more beyond that. Um, nobody worries about the sugars in fruit. That's not something anybody needs to be concerned about at right. all. I think it's important to make the, the distinction between added sugars. Oh, yes, absolutely. And naturally occurring sugars in absolutely. anything. So, yeah. You know, so I'm all for suggesting that people cut down on sources of sugars in their diet, particularly soft drinks, uh, because soft drinks have no redeeming nutritional None. value at all. Um, and people are mainlining sugar. The body really can't ha- isn't equipped to handle that level of sugar intake, um, especially in the light of the excessive number of calories from everything that everybody is eating. 
these days. Mm -hmm. So people need to eat less. That's a really tough message. It is. It's not what anybody wants to hear, especially at this time of year. No, forget Um, forget Christmas. Unfortunately, (laughs) we have to wrap this up. But I just wanted to ask both of you this question. Are there, in fact, any definitive studies? And I think you've already answered this, Marion. But, you know, really definitive studies that do make a concrete connection between the consumption of sugar and morbidity. Is there any, like, absolutely... Kristen, tooth decay. Talk about tooth decay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, certainly the health effects of eating sugar on teeth. You know, this is actually something that the sugar industry agrees on. You know, you can't really deny the impact of sugar on teeth, but of course, they tend to focus on bacteria and brushing your teeth rather than actually reducing sugar consumption. But uh, I would say I actually had the chance to go to a conference at the National Institutes of Health where they brought scientists together to try and address this sugar controversy. And it's just like, you know, this, what we found in, in the Mother Jones article. There were researchers like Kimber Stanhope from the University of California who'd done studies, 25% of calories from added sugars getting some really concerning results, changes in blood triglycerides. And then somebody from the Corn Refiners Association would stand up in the question and answer session and challenge everything about that study. So it's just this back and forth. There's so much circumstantial evidence that links diets high in sugar to poor health that really at this point, um, it's, we're at the stage we were with smoking. So yeah, it's time to start cutting down. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I want to thank you both very much for joining me, Mary, and it's always a great pleasure to have you in the studio with me, and I really appreciate your guest hosting here. And Kristen, thank you so much yes, uh, Kristen, for writing you. this article and for doing the research and for trying to, you know, tear away some of the um, veils of secrecy that shroud the business of sugar uh, in a sort of fluffy cloud of cotton candy. <laughs> Well, thank you for having me. And, of course, I would have never done any of this without reading Marion Nestle's work. So she's been a real inspiration to me. Oh, that's great. Ah, you've made my week. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So next year, folks, because we really have to wrap it up. um, Oh, and and, uh, Kristen, is there anything you want to say, like any promotion thing? People read the article. Like that's all I can say. Definitely read the article. It's Mother Jones. The stands, online. But it's also it's, online. A yep. whole bunch of extras. Yep. And I do blog occasionally at sugarpolitics.com. Ooh, awesome. Good. So remember that, folks. Next year, my friends, uh, this is our last show for 2012. Um, mine, anyway. And uh, next year, we will be covering a lot more science and public relations around antibiotics in the food chain, which, uh, as one of my guests said uh, recently, is the number one health crisis we face in this age. Um, it is the really, it is the biggest public health issue we are facing. And, um, and it's not coming in the future, it's happening right now. Um, so lots more about antibiotics, um, more about the integrity of scientific studies on subjects like GMO crops, uh, much more digging around in the dark and dirty corners of the food system. And also I'm going to do a show on fracking and livestock, the impact of fracking on livestock. Um, this was an article that came out in the Food and Environmental Reporting Network, which was then picked up by, I think, MSNBC. Um, but the author of that article will be joining me in January. So um, stay tuned. Thanks very much. Have a happy holiday. Happy New Year. And may 2013 bless us all with better stuff than 2012. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye now. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.